Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. John chapter 2, today we're going to talk about water to wine water to wine. And as we move through this series, we're looking at the series entitled Love, Good News to Believe in Jesus and Receive Eternal Life. And today we come to this passage in the Gospel of John where he has already introduced Jesus through this exaltation hymn. He's introduced the one who was ordained by God to point to Jesus, John the Baptist, throughout the second half of chapter one. And now we see the earth ministry of Jesus Christ begin. And so I want us to read together these first 12 verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and then we'll continue with our message. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wedding, excuse me, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. When we come to chapter 2, John introduces Jesus' earthly ministry, and he does so at a Jewish wedding in Cana. The interesting thing, as he continues from chapter 1, is that Nathaniel, the one who questioned if there was anything good that could come from Nazareth when he was told that the Christ had come from Nazareth, is from Cana of Galilee. And so in a very schooling way, you might say, Jesus takes Nathanael back to his hometown to show him how good what has come out of Nazareth really is. That's just a little innuendo. I always love these little details and intricacies where the word of God just becomes so rich to us. And they attend a wedding. What better way for Jesus to reveal who he is on this earth for us than the relationship that exists on earth that demonstrates how it is that we relate to God? Marriage. I'm telling you, these 12 verses are rich for us today, friends, in the water 
turning to wine. So let's talk about this narrative for a few moments. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother made him aware of it. Right, Lane? The trash can is full. What did you hear? Take the trash out, right? Jesus, they don't have any more wine. What did you hear? Get some more wine, right? I mean, okay, I just want to make sure we're tracking on the same level here. I don't know what causes that intuition and that level within a mother, but I have been on the receiving end of it many times, as I'm sure many of you have. I don't think it's possible for us to fully understand the ramifications of this situation, though. This was a wedding, and in Jewish culture of the first century, what was taking place when the wine ran out was not insignificant in the least. You see, if the cake or the punch runs out today, the wedding guests just go home. They may have a few choice descriptors for the people who hosted the wedding, but at the end of the day, you stop by Andy's on the way home and everything's fine, right? I mean, that makes everything better. But in the first century, there were two things that that anchored the spectrum of what could happen. On the, the least end of the spectrum, in a culture where that wedding feast represented the individual bridegroom that was being married, for the wine to run out was deeply shameful, not only for him, but for his family and his new family. And so for there to be no more wine was horrifically embarrassing and socially isolating. This was not something that would go away at the end of the ceremony. It's something that would go with them for the rest of their life. Remember those people? Remember the wedding they threw? The wine ran out, right? And it would cloud them the rest of their life. That's the least that would happen. At the very worst, what would happen is the bride's parents and the bride's family who would come to the wedding would see it as an insult to them as the groom not providing enough for the celebration to honor their daughter. And because of that, they, there is even evidence that they could take legal recourse against the groom and his family. Nothing like a wedding for the family to end up in court on opposite sides of the bench opposing one another, right? Remember the wedding? Oh, I remember it. And the judge is about to rule on what really happened. I mean, that's just not the way you want your wedding to go, right? And so Jesus responded to his mother in a very direct manner. And he does so, and he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, it's interesting. All of my life, when I tried to quote Scripture to my mother in response to her by saying, Woman, it never worked the same. It's a first of its kind for Jesus here. He'll do this two times in Scripture. It's the only two times in the Gospel of John that Mary is present in the account. The first time is here at the beginning and the introduction of his messianic ministry on the earth. The second time will be in John chapter 19 verse 26 when he's hanging on the cross. And he looks down at her and says, woman... Behold your son. 
Friends, there's so much more taking place here that I want us to see today. This is not inconsequential for our understanding, neither of what's taking place, nor of Mary, nor of Jesus. Jesus speaks to his mother throughout this gospel from a messianic role. And what I propose to you today is that Mary was totally good with that. I think in Mary's heart, she was saying, it's time. Oh, it is so time. Let's get this on. You see, Jesus responds by referring to that appointed hour of his revealing, of his making known that he was the Christ. And here's here's how the conversation goes. Mary speaks once. Jesus responds once. And that's it. Except for then Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is what I call a one-wayed conversation. Not a one-way conversation because Mary and Jesus spoke to each other. So it, it goes both ways. But it's a one-wayed conversation. And it's important because the entire conversation is a declaration of the revealing of Jesus as the Christ. Both in Mary's acknowledgement of it, but also in Jesus' acknowledgement of it. And what's about to happen at the wedding with what takes place to follow we see a confession and a pronouncement that will become the revealing of Jesus as the Christ you see Jesus speaks to his mother from a messianic role and Mary embraces that I I can't tell you that Mary knew what Jesus would do and and this is not just mother's intuition I mean I know this, when my mother said something to me and that was the last thing she said like that, I didn't always do it, but I knew what should have been done because of it, right? So this is not just Jesus doing what his mother told him to do. It is more than that. It's Jesus doing what his heavenly father sent him to do. And it is Mary, his earthly mother, being a key individual to trigger that time, to usher in the revelation. I can tell you this, Mary knew, Mary knew. And while I wish that I could say, that's what a mother's intuition is like, and mothers, you should be that intuitive about your children, <laughs> right? That, that's not the point here. Let me tell you why Mary knew though. Because Luke chapter two tells us That for 30 plus years, Mary had treasured and pondered the revelation of God in her heart. 30 plus years. Friends, you don't treasure Christ and ponder his revelation to you for 30 years and not have a deep, Cutting discernment to see through what's taking place on the surface to what God is doing in all of life. Now that's good application for mothers and fathers. That if we'll treasure the things of God and ponder them in our heart, he'll give us wisdom to follow him and to guide us in our life. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, to always obey and bring him praise and honor. I do believe Mary knew. I don't think Mary knew all that she knew, but she knew. And God was using her in this time. You see, the reason I say Mary knew 
is Mary was seeking the Father's will. This wasn't about what Mary wanted. This was about what Mary knew God was doing. And that's what Mary wanted. Fulfilling the desires of her heart because her heart was set on God. Jesus stayed focused on what the Father wanted him to do. And we see that. He says, woman, my hour has not yet come. That reference to hour there is an explicit reference to when he would hang upon the cross and be crucified. We see it three other times referenced in the same way with the same word throughout the Gospel of John. Mary knew what the Father wanted to do and was focused on the revelation of God and His will for His glory. The Son, Mary's Son, but more importantly, the Son of God, knew what the Father wanted for Him and stayed focused on that. What we see with this one-way conversation is a confession of the Christ being revealed before us that God might demonstrate His power, that people might see Jesus for who He is, and that they might believe in Him to receive eternal life. That's what takes place in these first four verses. And so we see that Jesus does what Mary said. He dealt with it. There were six water jars there. These are large jars, somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each, commentators estimate. So they would have represented somewhere between 120 and maybe as much as 180 gallons of water. And they were jars that were designed for Jewish purification rites. What that means is that a wedding was not just a great social event in that day, but it was, as it should still be today, a time where God is worshipped, where Jesus is enthroned, and where the glory of God is brought to bear through the most intimate of human relationships on the earth. And that was the celebration. And so there were rituals or traditions that they exercised because it was as much of a worship service as it was a wedding celebration. And people would come to the, the celebration and they would wash their hands from their long journey and it was a, a way of purifying and preparing them. And we know that there were many people because the jars were empty for the most part, qualifiably empty. And Jesus looked at them and he said, fill them up and they filled them to the brim, to the very top. Now, you can understand that the servants didn't know what was taking place because these jars had already been used for their designated purpose. And if people hadn't already washed their hands, what kind of people don't wash their hands before they eat, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the, the mindset that they would have held towards those who still needed to wash their hands. And what does washing their hands have to do with we have no more wine? But Jesus filled up these religious canisters anyway, all the way to the brim. And then he said, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast would have kind of been the coordinator, making sure everything gets done in a timely manner and the details are taken care of so that the family can celebrate together. And this all must have created some confusion for them because they just weren't any longer needed. And, and here's one thing that, that some of you can can agree with me on at the very least that one of the one of the things that religion loves to do is make sure it gets the order right maybe you've been in church long enough to 
to see what happens and the chaos that ensues when the order in the bulletin doesn't get followed from the platform. People revolt at those moments. I can't believe he sung that song before he sung this one. Obviously, it's not that way in the bulletin. And if the bulletin says it, that's the way we've got to do it. Okay, maybe none of you grew up in church. But religion tells us that the order is important because the order must be gotten right. Why? Because religion feeds on rules. It feeds on making sure everyone adheres. And anyone who had not washed by this time was, well, let's just say unwashable. Unwashable. And Jesus instructs them to draw that water out and take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast, when he receives it, is struck by the quality of wine. He praises the bridegroom for the best wine. He says, you know, most people will save uh, or, or serve the best wine first. And then when people have drunk all day, then they will serve lesser quality wine because you know, the longer a party goes, nobody's as interested in the fact that the quality of the wine is diminished, just that it's still present, right? That's what he's getting at. And then at that moment, at that moment, amidst the chaos of the recognition of the best wine, John pulls us out of the narrative. It's over. John finishes. And he says, from that time on, Jesus and his disciples and his mother and his brothers, and they left and went to another place. But here's what John says. This was the first of his signs that would manifest his glory. You know, uh, about, I don't know, 14 or 15 years ago, my brother called. He lived in Oklahoma City. And he said, hey, I've got some tickets to the Oklahoma Air Show. <laughs> there aren't many better words that you can say to a redneck that will light him up. We're there. I mean, before he hung the phone up, we had crossed the four and a half hour travel time and we were there for the event. When you go to an air show, I don't know if you've ever been to an air show or not, specifically in Oklahoma, because I love Oklahoma. We went and and, and, and there's people everywhere sprawled on top of their trucks and out the back of their trucks. And I mean, I could just feel the warmth as I drove into the air show. And, and there's, there's flames and there's loud engines and you can feel the engine more than you can see or hear it. I mean, you're just like, whoa, yeah. And I mean, they're doing crazy stuff in the sky and I don't even like to fly. So that's impressive to me at a whole new level. And, and the show really peaks when they bring an 18-wheeler tractor rig out on the runway and they bring a jet screaming across the sky and within the half mile of the runway, the tractor trailer rig, because it's jet engine powered, has outrun the jet itself. I mean, it's a wow moment that a redneck can hardly contain. I'm still talking about it 15 years later. That's what it did. To, it wowed me. I loved it. And here I was enjoying it and taking it all in. Now, I've matured over the last 15 years. I know that's debatable for some of you. But the way in which I've gotten my wows have changed. Now I go to YouTube. 
And I find the GoPro videos of guys riding mountain bikes down mountains that I'll never be able to ride, but I love <gasps> You know, and I watch them as they go and scream down the mountains. But, oh, we're not going to make a hole. We made it. All right. Oh, that was easy. That wasn't any big deal. You go, what in the world is he talking about? We all seek those wow moments. We all thrive on those times when we're just overwhelmed. But, but here's what Jesus did when the wow moment arose. It says he walked away. Left them in the wow. But he walked away. I, I find it interesting that Jesus was satisfied that those who had witnessed the miracle which John says is a sign that Jesus was satisfied for those who saw it and believed. He didn't stay and try to convince everyone at the wedding that he's the reason that the water became wine, that it's not the, the bridegroom who should get all the credit, but rather Jesus is the one who came through in the clutch. And Jesus was satisfied that in the moment, the people who knew who he was and believed, it was enough that they followed him. And so he left and he went to another place. You see, Jesus manifests his glory, friends, not just for a wow factor, not just to all people, but rather that we might believe and receive from him. To worship him and not just to admire him. Here's what I want us to walk away with today. Jesus reveals his glory that we might believe and follow him. Jesus reveals his glory. Wow. Is it wowing? Absolutely. Is it incredible? Is it, as my mother says, that's awesome. Yes. But he's not here just to be admired or wowed. He's here to be believed and worshiped. And that's the point he makes. And that's the point I want us to see today. You see, John is the only gospel account that records this miracle. But he doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a what? A sign. And every time Jesus performs a sign in the gospel of John, it's a sign. Not just, or every time Jesus performs a miracle, rather, it's a sign. You see, a miracle has power and authority displayed, but a sign has a purpose for why it was revealed. And that's the point that John is making to us. And that's the point that he wants us to see here. And it's the point that provides for us the key to understanding the whole message of his gospel is that what Jesus does is not just to wow or awe us, but to lead us to believe in him that we will follow him. And this passage provides much for us to, to, to draw from. And might I say, in, the, uh, in, in staying with the analogy, I really want to invite you to take a drink from this passage today, if you will, and see that the wow and the awe of Jesus Jesus' glory is not the greatest part of his glory, but rather believing him and following him is. You see, Jesus 
obeyed his heavenly father. He stayed focused on the hour. Jesus honored his mother through the obedience. And we're not told how Mary responded, but we're not left to believe that she was anything other than completely satisfied. And Jesus in the midst of this blessed many people, but none did he bless more than the bridegroom. I mean, you could say that, that Jesus saved the bridegroom's pride and his hide in a very literal way, right? Because he was either going to be shamed or he was going to be prosecuted. And either way, it was not good, but neither way came about because of what Jesus said. But even so, many, if not most that were there, never knew what happened until maybe later. Why? Verse 10 tells us why. Because they had been drinking all day and they were inebriated. Inebriated. Now, let me make a couple of statements about this passage. Number one, this passage is not about alcohol. Alcohol is part of this story, but this is not a story about wine or about alcohol. And this is not just a point about is drunkenness wrong, is drinking wrong, and what should we do about that? I propose that you miss the point altogether. But what we should not dismiss is that John in writing tells us that the people, and the word he uses here is that they were inebriated. In other words, they were so enamored by the wine and by the situation that had taken in place that they missed, they dismissed, they neglected, they were distracted from whatever the word you want to use, they missed the whole point of what took place. And I do think that's what John wants us to hear today. I do believe that what John is laboring for is very intentional in his helping us understand that the people didn't know who to give the glory to, not because they didn't ask, which they didn't, but because they didn't care because they were inebriated. So do we go, well, just don't get drunk and you'll be okay. Actually, no, no. Not at all. It's much bigger than that, friends. Look more intently at Jesus and his work. You see, Jesus used the jars of religion to show that religion could never hold the glorious wonder of his power. What those jars were intended for were but a microcosm of what God used them for in Jesus Christ. And while his work was not unknown... There were some who saw it. Jesus' mother likely knew what was taking place as she walked away. The disciples were there by at least five of them at this point, and the servants. So it wasn't completely unknown, but we do know this, that Jesus never received glory in that time for it. It was dismissed, it was neglected, and it was denied by most. But for those who knew what had happened, it made all the difference. It made all the difference. You see, Jesus reversed the expectation of the religious hour to reveal the best at last. Friends, how you come to Jesus, it matters. Can I just make a point of application for us here before we move on? Whether or not you come into this place, whether or not you gather with these people, wanting to meet with Jesus or wanting something else, matters and I would say to you it will inebriate you 
if you're not conscious about setting aside the things that wow you, that awe you, or that you feel the freedom to commentate on and allow to distract you, and it'll cause you to miss the very thing that God wants you to do. Not only in this place when we gather for worship, but when you walk out of here and the rest of your day, and when you go back to work this week, if your mind and your heart are not set on Christ, you'll be inebriated by busyness. You'll, need, you'll be inebriated by hurriedness, by distraction, by anxiety, by all the cares and concerns of this world, by the things that you put in first place. You will become in such a way that you will miss what God is doing around you and you'll miss the one that he's revealing within you see that's what John is saying to us this is not just a key to understanding the difference between water and wine this is the key to understanding the difference between religion and relationship with Jesus and it matters every moment of your life and it matters every second of your life and it matters in every place of your life that you go And if we miss this, we'll miss everything. Do you ever wonder how many times you've missed Jesus because you were occupied? Because you were distracted? Because you dismissed it as just, oh, happenstance or whatever? Maybe religious ritual or tradition distracted you or something else distracted you. You know, religion distracts us in a myriad of ways. We come in and and, and we gather, and I use these just because they're common experiences for us. But we come in together and we go, man, we're not singing the songs that I wanted to sing today. I wish we had sung that song. And we get distracted about things not being as we think they ought to be or maybe what somebody else does that distracts us and we kind of polarize on them. And if they would just stop distracting me, I could focus on what's happening. Sometimes we get distracted by the things that we like. Oh my goodness, these are all the songs that I love to sing. And we get more enthralled by the warm and fuzzy of what they give to us because we like them than they do about what they say for us, to us, and from us. Yeah. Yeah, you can get drunk on sour wine and good wine. You can become inebriated by anything, friends, by anything. Man, if he'd just preach on something that mattered to me or that was important to me, if he'd just preach in a way that was a little more practical for me, maybe, maybe I could jive with it a little better. I need to hear something For me, why can't these people behave the right way, right? And that might be in church. It might be anywhere. Why can't they just be what I am? Yes, that's our goal, to make the whole world like me. I don't even think I would like the world if that were the case. One more of me, I think, would put me over the edge. You see, Jesus' first sign His first sign, friends, shows religion's insufficiency to satisfy our heart's desire, but it's ceaseless striving to distract us when he does show up in wonder-working power. You see, we think of religion as just the ritual of what we go through when the church is together. I'm telling you, religion becomes anything you put in your heart that takes Jesus' seat of priority and steals your focus from him. Religion might be your job. Religion might be your busyness. It could be your recreation. It's anywhere that you enthrone a false idol and offer false worship to false glory 
believing that it will bring the satisfaction that it probably even promised you, but knowing full well that it leaves you destitute and a little more destroyed and damned every time. And you know that because the darkness and the weight of that condemnation will not go away. That's why Jesus has come. We're not left to wonder about all that Jesus did. John makes it clear. He gave us a sign. And if Jesus teaches anything in this sign, he demonstrates that at the very least, he holds absolute authority and power over creation. This physical world and the limitations by which we are ruled holds no limitations for the lawgiver and the lawmaker. Jesus created the law of gravity. He gets it. He, he understands how mass sinks in water, right? And he knew how to deal with it, right? I mean, we see this throughout the scripture, but we must be careful that we do not dismiss him by denying his work or giving his praise to others. Jesus was no less Jesus to everyone else at the wedding than he was to his disciples that believe and followed, but he was very different to the ones who followed them than to the ones who denied him. And the point I want to make to you today is this. What is he to you? Have you denied him? Have you dismissed him? Where are you denying? See, our hearts are so prone to worship anything and everything that brings us just a moment of satisfaction that we will wander from him. If Jesus' sign, though, friends, doesn't lead you to believe in him, it really doesn't matter how good the wine or how much remains or what you saw or who saw you at the wedding. You were just inebriated from what was really going on. And that's what it is in life, in learning to worship the Lord Jesus in all of life. What we see in Jesus' first miracle provides a key to understand all of his work, that God has purposed that his work around us would lead us to believe in Jesus and fuel the work of Jesus within us. Yeah, that's why some people wake up in the morning and worship the beauty of creation as God and others wake up in the morning and worship God through the beauty of creation. Jesus reveals God's glory that we might believe and follow him. Can I just make a few uh, 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 comments here about the responses that we see? And that's what I want to offer you today. Three responses that help us shape how we respond to Jesus to deepen our trust in him and our obedience of him. The first response we see is what I call a testimony of encouragement. A testimony of encouragement. Mary represents this response to Jesus. And I call it a testimony of encouragement because through it, we are led to a deeper, more abiding trust in him. You see, Mary's trust and obedience was not anchored in her feeling in the moment. I don't believe that whatsoever. We have no indication of that from the story or from any of the details in the story. But rather, Mary's trust, Mary's belief was in the promise of God that she had already received 30 plus years later. Listen to me, friends. The truth of God is not just good for you today. It's good for you. You get that? 
And what God wants to do in your life and what God is doing around and in you is not just going to get you through today, but it is remaking you. It is transforming you into his image each and every day, changing you from what sin made you to what Christ and his righteousness upon you is living out from you. That's the the power of this encouragement. Her trust and her obedience was not anchored in the feeling of the moment. She didn't wait until the moment she most needed to believe in order to practice her faith. But rather, we know from the life of Mary that she'd spent all these years treasuring and pondering Christ. Treasuring and pondering the promise of God that the angel came and announced to her that you will be with child. You will be conceived by the Holy Spirit coming upon you and you will give birth and his name will be Jesus and he will save people from their sins. Mary wasn't focused on the awe and the wow. And I'm telling you, if anybody ever had justification to be a little consumed with awe and wow, it was Mary. But she wasn't. She had treasured the promise of God in her heart. And she had pondered it all of her life. And when the time came, she said, Jesus, deal with this. You and I both know who you really are. Show them. I wanted to see you, not because my kid is perfect, but because the Father has promised you, and I know what you can do. You see, believe begins by trusting in God's promise when it comes from his word, not when the moment of greatest need arises. For some of you, what God is saying to you today, he may not draw from for days, for weeks, for months, or for years. It may be a completely different season of your life when he brings you back and brings this recollection to mind. But you are anchoring your heart and your mind in the bedrock truth of Christ who is the rock and in him in whom your life is found And if you will treasure him and you will ponder him, it will be for you not only a stable standing regardless of what comes against you, but it will be a testimony of encouragement for any who need him in the moment. And there were plenty who did. But if you wait until the moment of greatest need, you're most likely to be inebriated by something else because that's what you've been treasuring and that's what you've been pondering all this time the person who has learned to take everything to Jesus and to leave it with him has learned that he always provides in the abundant measure of his goodness and of his loving kindness and not just in accordance to our understanding I do believe Mary knew I don't believe Mary knew all Mary's not the omniscient one Jesus is you may not know everything you think you need to know But Jesus never leaves you without everything you must know to believe and to follow him. Belief in Jesus holds this person through disappointments, through discouragements, through distractions in life in order to trust that he will show himself as faithful and true. Friends, Jesus always blesses the one who believes in him with a greater experience of his power and a deeper abiding present within which to strengthen us. Always. And Mary's response helps us understand God's work in other ways too. 
that God uses others to point and to encourage us and to spur us on through our obedience. And the point is not the other person, but the point is that through the other person, where that faithful testimony of encouragement comes, we're pointed to Christ. Friends, let me say this to you. You may be pointing to Christ today through someone, and you may be the one who is pointing someone to Christ. That's not it's not necessarily important to determine which is which in each, each situation, excuse me. But I will say this to us, Christians. Someone else's belief is always awaiting your obedience. When he told us that we would be his faithful witnesses, there's not a moment that someone else's belief can't be pointed to Jesus through your obedience. And where God calls you to trust and to obey Him in Jesus will always provide a testimony for another to believe in Jesus. The second response I want you to see this morning is what I would call a warning to guard against distracted unbelief. This second response is represented by the master of the feast. By far, this represents the majority response of what took place in this story He indulged, he enjoyed, and then he gave praise. But he missed the real meaning because he gave misguided praise to the one that really wasn't present. And the servants who saw, we don't know that they understood what happened, but we know they knew what happened. You know, it does remind us that a silent witness is the worst, denying people of the truth of what really happened when we will not speak for what we have witnessed in Christ. But a bigger distraction that caused the majority's unbelief was this. They were distracted by inebriation that caused them to care or not care about asking and seeking any other answers. And see, Christians must continually guard our heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ from allowing anything, religion, relationship, ritual, tradition, whatever the case, to be a substitute for Jesus. We only treasure and ponder Christ through the gospel. And we learn that the difference between the one who fills the jar and whom we obey to draw it out is completely different than the reason that the jars may have been there to begin with. Because believing in Jesus means that we guard our heart and mind by drawing from him only as our source of life and strength. Whether the moment feels like it demands it to a greater extent or whether we're just filling our jars for him to draw from later to bless us. That's the second response, friends. And I ask you this. Is your response to Jesus one of distracted unbelief? Distracted unbelief. You go, I didn't mean to not believe. That's the point. It's just a lot of things. Sometimes it's denial, explicit unbelief. But more times than not, I'm pretty sure today, it's just distraction. Distraction. The third response is a belief in Jesus that deepens within to obey and follow him. That's what we see by the disciples. You see, the Christ followers, we, we see the work of God around us and we believe more deeply in Jesus to follow him more faithfully in all of life. There's never a testimony that gets offered about Jesus and his work that we don't draw strength and deepen our own trust in him for our life. 
That's why testimonies are so important. That's why next week, the testimony of baptism, that will take place over and over again in each of our services, will deepen our trust in following of Jesus in each heart and life, and some maybe for the first time. The work of God deepens in us by faith as we believe in Jesus. Our belief is not directed in just a factual knowledge, but in the person of who he is that he sent from God as the Christ to bring to us what we could not bring for ourselves. You see, many experience God's glory and they offer misguided praise and false worship from unbelief. But those who believe in Jesus always give praise by following in obedience. And I want you to get this today, friend. That, that, that obedience isn't something you do for God. It's something that we live out because of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus turns water to wine that we might believe in him, the one who makes the heart eternally glad. The one who makes the heart eternally glad. The point is not that Jesus turns everything into wine. That's what we call prosperity gospel. It's false hope, it's false gospel, and it's, even though it's very prevalent, it's completely wrong. But rather that Jesus, Jesus is the one through whom the greatest gladness of heart will ever come. The greatest gladness of mind will ever be delivered. And the issue from this third testimony or response is for us to ask, am I worshiping him because of who he is? Or am I simply awed and wowed and asking for what he can do? That's what it causes us to ask. Jesus is here. He's the Christ of God who is with us. How are you responding to him in your life? Have you considered this? Do you show up to see him do cool stuff? But praise and worship always gets misguided to yourself, to someone else, or to something else. Or are you treasuring Christ through understanding him and, and his power and his abiding presence? to see him work in your life and all the things around your life that you might believe and follow. That's why God has sent Jesus. That's why he's here today. And that's what he's asking each of us. Let's pray.